Good morning. This is Jean Ampshire with the International Power Hour. I am here this morning with my co-host Cliff Staten, and we have for you today an international news forum. It's been a little while since we talked about the news. We have quite a variety of topics, we but do. Uh, there was a one topic we hadn't, we weren't really going to talk about, but we have to mention the fact that. Uh, uh, Brexit, uh, the exit, so to speak, uh, failed again. Yes, uh, there was another vote yesterday in the House of Commons. Um, uh, Prime Minister May had gone back to the European Union and had received quote-unquote assurances that Britain would not be locked into um, the quote-unquote backstop, um, which is the special arrangement that uh it is a, a sort of an emergency provision for the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland um, if they fail to negotiate an agreement on that. Um, and they got assurances that, that the backstop would not be jail. Um, and, and Prime Minister May hoped that that would uh, assuage the concerns of enough folks in the House of Commons that they would vote for her, her, her deal, which she still maintains is the only deal. And she did pick up about 40 votes from her own party but yes. she was still defeated by 149 votes, which is um, resounding and devastating and um, really um, just throws things into total I mean, it's been chaotic anyway, but it's even more chaotic now. Uh, we are 16 days um, as of today. Close to the deadline. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's important to watch this story in the, in the next few, yes, next couple absolutely. weeks. absolutely. Well, this week, actually, there's there's a, a big vote today on whether the parliament will decide on whether or not um, a hard Brexit, a no-deal Brexit can even occur. Um, and as an indication of Prime Minister May's weakness, she's actually um, you know, not even trying to hold her own party to the party line. She's had to open it up to people voting their conscience, which is not really typical in British politics. Right. Um, usually they vote party line very strictly. Um, and then later, depending on how this vote go goes, uh, later this week there's another vote on whether or not they will actually ask the EU to extend the, the departure date from um, March 29th to a little bit later, but it can't be much later. Right. So very complicated situation, absolutely something that people should be watching. At some point, a decision has to be made one way or another. Right. So we shall In see. In theory, it was made. Almost a bear, right? Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> we thought um, one topic we haven't really addressed in the time we've been on on the air here is um, close to 50 episodes the uh the bds movement uh, and it's been in the news recently the backlash to that uh the bds movement start is, by explaining uh, what that is <laughs> sure that's the boycott divestment and sanctions movement um and what do those three terms mean <laughs> well that we if you if you go to their website which I did just to see, yes, which I, I. I'd actually never <laughs> been to their website. Not but either. ultimately, it, it's, it's a global social movement, various organizations, parts of it that are ultimately trying to put pressure on the Israeli government to uh, treat uh, Palestinians fairly, whether in the West Bank, whether they're in Israel proper, or whether they're in Gaza. And that's, in essence, what it is, uh, looking for a more even-handed approach and to, to treat uh, for Israel uh, to, to treat Palestinians uh, equally. And to boycott, I mean, pe people are probably most familiar with the concept right. of boycotting. I'm not going to buy these products. Right. Um, and um, a couple of the products that people um, probably are more likely to be familiar with um, that are targeted, targeted, I'm guessing the most common is uh, Sabra hummus, which, you know, you can get at Kroger. I'm guessing, I oh, am yes. guessing, but I'm guessing it's the most popular probably. Uh, hummus brand in the U.S. because it is, it is ubiquitous. Um, and also SodaStream for those who like fizzy, fizzy Bev. <laughs> there are other companies. I looked at the list because mm -hmm. and, and most of the companies I really, quite honestly, hadn't heard of. But yeah. Stanley, Black & Decker, yes. Tools, Caterpillar. Okay. Caterpillars are used and to Hewlett destroy Packard Palestinian And Hewlett-Packard is on the list as well. Yeah. Now, there are lots of others. I just, I just didn't recognize those. But most Americans recognize those, yeah. those names. Some so the idea is to boycott their products to try to put draw put economic pressure on Israel to to uh, uh, treat uh, Palestinians with with uh, equal respect under the law and so on and so forth so and then the next term there is divest divestment uh, which uh, ultimately means that uh, put pressure on 
whether it be financial institutions uh, globally or whether it be businesses that literally invest in Israeli companies for them to actually pull their investments out. That's that's essentially what divestment divestment means. And we've seen some. Um, um, and then this was you know this this model this mm-hmm. this BDS model was based upon the anti-apartheid movement in the early 80s against South Africa, and right. of course was was Success. played a role yes. in 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 bringing down the apartheid government of of, of South Africa. Yeah. So yes, divestment is, is part of it. Well, and we have seen, um, according to the the BDS website claiming claiming credit, uh, uh, religious organizations like the United Methodist Church and the Presbyterian Church USA have have apparently divested um, a variety of. I mean, again, it's as you said, it's a global movement. So, right. um, foundations and there have been some some students have actually urged uh, their universities that have large foundations right. to divest from. From uh, from the uh, from Israel is from Israeli companies as well. There is so. apparently a massive debate among students and different student organizations at Columbia sure. University uh, just within the last few days. An article yes. in the Jerusalem Post yes. about it. Yeah. So that's a and then sanctions. Sanctions is the idea that uh, you would lobby your government to to put uh, um, whether it be economic, political. Uh, sanctions against Israel f- that, that uh, when they engage in what what uh, basically illegal activities in, in the West Bank and, and Gaza, and uh, even among uh, the pa- for Palestinians, Palestinian Israelis. Many people don't realize that 20% of the population in Israel are actually Palestinians in Israel proper. So. So what kind of illegal activities are people protesting? Well, this would be, for example, uh, the Israelis uh, quite often will uh, arrest people and hold them without charging them with a crime. Uh, In terms of political opposition leaders, especially in the West Bank, this happens quite a bit, and they're ultimately released. But nonetheless, uh, uh, at least from... A Western perspective, a Western jurisprudence perspective, uh, you know, you put someone in jail, you're supposed to charge them with a crime. And this this, happen, this happens frequently. Okay. Or putting a minor... A huge percentage of the Palestinian male population in particular has yes. been... I mean, like, I, mean <clears throat> I want to say it's 40% of Palestinian males, Palestinian males have been um, detained right, in right. that fashion. And there have been reports um, from human rights organizations that mistreatment of, of um, detainees Yes. has occurred and even put, putting some minors in jail as yeah, oh well. yes so, absolutely uh, you know so that so boycott divestment sanctions as as we said it's a, a global movement started with the palestinians themselves but and you can find groups all over this country that support it all over the world but the interesting thing is that um you know in the in the united states there's been kind of a backlash to that um uh, backlash. Uh, you know, the United States has a long history of supporting yes. Israel, um, and uh, whether that's strategic, as it was clearly during the Cold War, cle- clearly there's a strategic reason for that. There was a common Judeo-Christian ethic uh, commonality right. in explaining that as well. But there's also the the uh, the Israeli lobby, APAC. Mm-hmm. Um, um, which, which clearly plays a role in terms of U.S. policy towards Israel as well. So we have this long-standing, close relationship with, with Israel. And um, at least when I, when I look at it, I, I see the Trump administration has really bumped that up a bit, so yes. to speak. Uh, he's extremely fond of Prime Minister Netanyahu and uh, in many ways has, has uh, what policies we did have in support of Palestinian rights. He's, he's either ignored them or cut funding. And so you see this, and of course the move to the, the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. So mm-hmm. this even deepening of ties between Israel and the United States under the Trump administration. Yeah. Um, but it comes at a time when there's this backlash to it, especially, and it's interesting, uh, at least the literature I've read, it tends to be generational here in the United States. The millennials are very uh, more open to uh, support of Palestinian rights yes. and, and injustices and so on. And there, there's, and, and if you look at some of the new members in Congress who are mm-hmm. very outspoken in terms of pro, their pro-Palestinian um, uh, views. So this has started to create a, 
I guess, contention, especially in the Democratic Party itself. It's, it's uh, also increased significantly uh, over time, just within the last, um, you know, probably five years or so, um, we see a um, greater divergence uh, between the political parties, actually, right. and, yes. not, and not just the parties, but their supporters um, in uh, support for Palestinians and uh, among, li- among liberal Democrats, um, you know, not moderate Democrats, but among the most liberal Democrats, uh, support for Israel is, is actually quite low now. Yes. Um, and that is in contrast. So um, according to, uh, <clears throat> sorry, some recent data um, from, I guess actually it's about a year old, um, support was down among the most liberal Democrats, support for Israel was down to about 19%, um, whereas among the most conservative Republicans, it's 81%. Right, right. Um, and among moderate Republicans, 70%, um, moderate Democrats, 35%. So there's, there's, there's a big range there, but, sure. um, but just overall a much bigger divergence. And so what has happened in the last few years is that um, um, the supporters of Israel and um, its lobbyists here in the United States have been pressing, uh, especially state governments, uh, to pass laws uh, which would uh, which work against the BDS movement. Uh, for example, Indiana has an anti-BDS law as well. Um, so I, mean, how does I think that there work? I think there are 26 states that have various forms of anti-BDS uh, pieces of legislation or laws. And in essence, it's basically saying that if you own a company and if you're if you don't either you have to either sign a paper that you won't boycott Israel or divest from Israel. And if you don't sign that, then you can't do business with the state. Uh, that's essentially the, the basis of some of them go even even more in terms of just companies. For example, in Texas, state employees have to have to sign. Uh, 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 even teachers have to sign uh, a statement saying that they won't engage in a boycott. Now, I don't know how you enforce that, an individual. You know, um, I can boycott. I must buy Sabra yogurt, or not yogurt, you know, I must uh, buy Sabra hummus. You know, how, how do you know when someone's engaging yeah. in a boycott by just simply not buying <laughs> hummus from Sabra hummus? But anyway, but yeah. you do, apparently, uh, there was the case of the speech pathologist in uh, Texas who... Um, had a contract and refused to sign the, that she said, yeah, I, I, I can't sign this saying I won't boycott uh, is, uh, companies that do business in Israel. And uh, she lost her job because of it. So, uh, so you're seeing, I think, 26 states, at least last count I have, have these anti-BDS pieces of legislation. And if you look at it, uh, you know, some question... You know, is this really constitutional? Can the state um, limit companies uh, from doing business with the state? There was a newspaper in Arkansas that is that has sued the state of Arkansas. I think ultimately, uh, a federal district court ruled against, uh, in favor of the state of Arkansas. There was a similar case in Kansas where a federal district court actually ruled in favor of um, against the state of Kansas. So. Ultimately, I think this is going to head to the Supreme Court. Uh, well, and among so, public employees, I mean, working for the government doesn't mean that you have to give up your freedom of free speech, speech rights. rights. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's not, right. Not yes. And that would include free speech rights of companies, I assume, as well. Companies or people, according to the Supreme Court. Uh, Citizens United. Yes, yes, absolutely it is. So, uh, I mean, it's so, I mean, the, the BDS movement um, is not without... Uh, very legitimate critics. The Anti-Defamation League um, within the U.S., um, which is a organization that counters hate, um, has been very critical of the of the BDS movement, um, focusing on um, fairly specific elements of its of its position. Um, 
uh, the J Street, which is a, a pro-peace, pro-Israel right. organization right. Um, within the U.S., um, claims that the BDS movement does not support the two-state solution. It does not recognize the right of the Jewish people to a state or distinguish between opposition to the existence of Israel itself and opposition to the occupation of the territory beyond the Green Line, um, the 1967 right. borders. Um, and, uh, you know... Some of the movement supporters and leaders, um, according to J Street, have trafficked in, you know, pretty unacceptable anti-Semitic rhetoric. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think it is a any global movement, any social right. movement is going to have a mixture of participants um, and thus a mixture of messages. Um, but, uh, you know, the two-state solution... I don't really see a viable alternative to that if Israel is going to exist and the Palestinians are going to have their own their own their own state their own well, I mean, or to have rights have, within have rights. the state where else yeah I think there's no uh, other Prime Minister way. Netanyahu said that his goal was to create a Jewish state which was quite controversial he made a even very in Israel controversial statement just last week yeah yes. about um yeah, Israel was for Jews and not for yeah. the twenty-one percent Arab population. The issue, kind of, I yeah. think, um, this, yeah. the BDS movement and the backlash to that, kind of, I think, is hitting the United States at a time when you have the administration that is yeah. overtly, perhaps more than any administration, overtly pro-Israeli. At the same time, you're getting growing numbers of Americans who question. Yes, I would argue, legitimately question that relationship. And then, of course, amid all the cries of, of you know, is, can you criticize Israel without being anti-Semitic and the, these Obviously types of things. Of and um, yeah. so this is where the BDS, BDS movement falls in in terms of U.S. politics here. It'll be interesting to see how the courts rule up the line, given that two district courts have already have kind of diverged in terms of can a state actually tell a business you can't work. We can't sign a contract with you unless you sign this paper saying you 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 won't you will not engage in any uh, anti-Israeli activities. So yeah. that to me uh, goes against the grain of, of personally. It goes against the grain of what our Constitution is all about. But it's tricky. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so um, anyway, so that that I think that's something something to watch. And yes, as I said I earlier, I think. Um, uh, uh, not only party, Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, liberal, but I think there's a generational yeah, uh, issue here as well, so, especially among millennials who, who see Palestinian, Israeli-Palestinian debate in, in much more equal terms, let's yeah. put it that way. I think it's also worth noting, um, I, I, people, I think, um, might wrongly uh, assume that the most intense supporters of Israel are Jewish Americans. Um, and certainly Jewish Americans are undoubtedly supportive of Israel. But there is another group out there um, that is incredibly politically powerful with enormous influence um, that is Christian evangelicals. That's and, correct, yes. Um, there is a Christian Zionist movement that is a quite active in the u.s quite powerful quite active in taking uh tours to the holy land yes. and so on lobbying and uh lobbying elected, very very strongly pro israeli israel exactly yes. um so this is not this isn't a, just a jewish thing that's correct uh, by absolutely means, by any means yeah. yeah yeah all right so that's something to kind of pay attention to yeah. as to how it moves along i think especially now that you know with with the the the, the quote freshman class in Congress being a little more vocal in terms of and not accepting of this this um, uh, relationship uh, that we have with Israel, at least, a, at least willingness to criticize it. Yes, so. I'm looking at the clock and I think we probably ought to take a quick break here. So the International Power Hour will be right back. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the International Studies Department at IU Southeast where you can prepare for your global future. More information online at ius.edu slash international dash studies. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the Department of Political Science at IU Southeast, studying power in all its forms and places, offering multiple tracks in political science and public administration. More information online at ius.edu slash political dash science. 
As humans, we ask ourselves all kinds of questions. But what if we were forced to ask ourselves a question every day that affected the outcome of the most basic things, the most important things in our lives? The question is, what is your sexual orientation or gender identity? And the answer is the difference between keeping your job or getting fired. The answer is the difference between staying in your home or getting evicted. The answer is the difference between receiving medical treatment or not. Because in 31 states, it's legal to discriminate against people based on their answer to this question. LGBT Americans have the right to say, I do, but they don't have the same basic rights as everyone else. Get the facts at beyondido.org. Brought to you by the Gill Foundation and the Ad Council. I'm probably okay to have one more drink before I drive home. I'm probably okay. I open the window to stay alert. Probably okay. I just popped some gum in my mouth. Step out of the car, please. I probably made a mistake. Probably okay isn't okay when it comes to drinking and driving. If you see a warning sign, stop and call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzzed driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the International Power Hour. This is Jean Abshire. I'm here with my co-host Cliff Staten, and we're doing an international news forum today. Um, Cliff, we uh, quite recently had another major international summit. President Trump uh, went to Vietnam and met with North Korean uh, Party Chairman Kim. And nothing really, nothing, nothing really happened, quite honestly. It was cut short uh, with the president leaving uh, with basically no deal whatsoever. Um, it was uh, abruptly cut short, I guess is one way to put it. Um, it was a follow-up of his first meeting with uh, Kim Jong-un in Singapore. And uh, this was kind of trying to see, can we go the step further the first meeting there was at least a commitment to denuclearization even though that term was never really defined and uh, never defined yeah yes and the u.s uh with that quote commitment uh we we actually ended our um, uh, military exercises uh with 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 south korea which right. is extremely important in terms of that area so eight months followed, um, at least from my understanding, very little was accomplished in that. And so... No, in fact, throughout that time, there were repeated reports that, you know, North Korea was doing things that, that didn't really seem to be in alignment right. with which, which clearly uh, yeah. uh, was, was basically a, re a rejection of the idea of denuclearization. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, from what... And really observers, I think, looking at that eight-month period... We're predicting this was not going to be a very successful summit. Um, there was limited optimism. And ultimately, it, it, it ended up in failure uh, with, with um, uh, you know, there was some hope that uh, the North Koreans would at least provide a list of all their nuclear facilities and so on. Right. Uh, and that, that didn't come about. And so ultimately... I'm not sure where we go from here, quite honestly. I think uh, the, the a roadmap to repairing the the relationship, um, I'm not sure even that roadmap exists. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens um, after at, at this point. Yeah, the uh, North yeah. Koreans were seeking sanction relief. Um, yes. And it does seem that, uh, you know, I mean... They have, a, they have a better relationship with China, and they're quite reliant on China for, for getting things into North Korea. And, and China, especially since the Singapore summit between Trump and Kim last summer, that sort of gave China a little more latitude to look away on things moving in and out of North Korea that is beneficial to North Korea. Right. Um, <clears throat> but nevertheless, um, it does seem like, uh, you know, North Korea's economy, which is never, never really strong, um, it, excuse me, is, is, is suffering and that they do maybe have some genuine uh, needs, needs and, and incentive to, to do something to get rid of the sanctions. But, but what they consider to be denuclearization, which is denuclearization of the entire Korean peninsula, including U.S. Uh, 
munitions uh, is, is not our definition of denuclearization, which is North Korea giving up its, just North Korea giving up its nuclear program. And that, that gap is going to be incredibly uh, difficult to bridge. Right. And all of our intelligence agencies indicate that, um, you know, that, that they really did not even begin to denuclearize during this eight-month period. Um, yeah. In fact, just They, they have operational ballistic missiles. Yes. They have uh, developed other nuclear weapon sites, and so, and they're working on different delivery systems. So, really, there was, there was no progress. And, um, you know, really, summits are supposed to work in which the yeah. non-principles, the working groups work out a deal, then right. the presidents the show up. The lower-level folks. The presidents show up and the... sign the papers and get the pictures made. Right. And really, this simply was, was not done. Right. This was not done. And many people, as a, as a result, I think, predicted, predicted this outcome. Yeah, so. there was concern heading in that, that President Trump, um, so eager for a deal, might, um, you know, give away too much. And he didn't do that. And that's good. Um, certainly, uh, the Japanese were um, very relieved, actually, <laughs> when yes. um, Trump just up and sure. left and was, and was uh, very much hoping that we would not. Uh, use sanctions. It'll be and interesting to see if we continue the war game, war effort, war games with South Korea and Japanese uh, I forces. I believe that we've uh, actually announced that we will not since the summit. Well, that's um, interesting because you know, should should we do that it. though? Yeah. That might be viewed as and will be viewed as antagonistic towards. And I don't think the Chinese Chinese would like to see an end to those games as well. But yeah. anyway, so yeah, I think I saw a headline suggesting that we were going to actually continue just to. Not do those, right? Which I think is interesting. I was a little surprised to see that. I, I was too. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, let's so. let's kind of turn shift to a different part, uh, a different part of the world here. Um, something we haven't talked about, and this is uh, the ongoing dispute between India and Pakistan over um, an area, a region which is in the north, northern, most northern part of. of India, yeah, uh, Jammu Kashmir, Kashmir, or just yes. Kashmir, that's often referred to. So, Jean, what, what's going on there? Yeah, I did mention it just really in passing um, okay. two weeks ago when things were just starting to uh, figuratively blow up. Um, but, you know, sort of a, a watch this kind of thing, but it's definitely worth talking about. So, um, Kash the Kashmir is a valley in uh, northern India slash southern and eastern Pakistan that it's between um, two big mountain ranges yes right the Himalayas and the there's another group um I can't the name I can't. of which I'm blanking on as well and I mean China's got a piece of this right. like, it's a complicated right. region um and the the legacy of the problems dates back to the partition of India and Pakistan in 1947 when the British pulled out exactly. the independence of India yes. exactly um and it, it's a predominantly not not by any means 100% but a predominantly Muslim region um but it had been governed by a Hindu um Maharaja or right. king and uh that Indian uh, Hindu uh, figure basically chose to stay with India rather than Pakistan um, against the wishes of, again, a, a significant portion of uh, the Kashmiri population, which is Muslim and would have preferred to go with Pakistan. And, and very fundamentally, this does um, come down to an identity issue for Pakistan, but also for India. Right. Um, because India... Having Kashmir, uh, it's it's the only province in India that is that is majority Muslim, um, and India has um, ha has defined itself as a multi-religious, multicultural state since partition, since its inception, um, as as we know it today, um, and and having Kashmir really reinforces that identity, but. Um, but <laughs> it has been a source of conflict. There have been wars fought over it since um, Pakistan controls about a third of it. Uh, India controls about another two-thirds. China has a little piece of it, as I said. Um, but we have seen things heat up just recently. Um, there, it's, been, it's been bubbling a, a little bit more um, since, well, probably, well, I want to say since, like, 2005 or 2006 um, when there was a little bit of a shift toward more violence um, but and it's been on and off um, some of the disputes over over local autonomy yes absolutely much, even within 
if you think of Kashmir in India, the question is how much local autonomy does Kashmir have vis-a-vis India? Well, and Kashmiris don't necessarily want to be part of India or Pakistan. Right, right. Um, there, is a, there is a percentage of, Pakistan, of uh, Kashmiris who would actually like to be independent. <laughs> um, so, so there's a, a big mixture there. A couple of weeks ago, um, actually uh, February 14th, um, more than 40 Indian security staff um, were killed in a suicide attack um, in the Kashmir that um, India claims was carried out by um, an Islamist militant group called jaish e mohammed And uh, the Indians claim that, that Pakistan allows uh, this and other um, Islamist groups to operate on Pakistani territory. The Pakistani government says no. Um, and then uh, 12 days later, as a retaliatory strike, um, India uh, launched an air campaign against uh, what they claimed were these uh, militant group training camps in Pakistan. Um, they claimed that the, f- the strikes were preemptive, and then uh, Pakistan retaliated with an airstrike on uh, an Indian uh, uh, installation on uh, the Indian side of the line of control. Right. And there was a fighter pilot shot down. And as a as a as a and things were really escalating at that point. And the the Pakistanis took a a, a good and major step um, in that very quickly they sent the fighter pilot home um, as a as a gesture of, of peace and goodwill. Um, and that has done a lot, I think, to at least prevent things from escalating. The idea of cooler heads will prevail exactly. here. Exactly. But it, the situation is still complicated. For one thing, I, you know, I just sort of ran through a chronology of what happened there. Almost everything that I just said is contested. Um, yes. So uh, the Indians claim that um, their uh, preemptive strike on the Jayesh and Muhammad uh, training camp killed um, as many as 250 people. Uh, the Pakistanis say, well, actually, you broke some trees, like literally you hit trees and that was it. Um, and there is some evidence from um, outside observers uh, that indeed that could be true. Um, the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab um, said that uh, open source satellite imagery indicated only impacts in a wooded area with no damage being visible to surrounding structures, which if you killed 250, and some reports as high as 350 people, like you're going to get more than some downed trees. Absolutely. Um, and then there was also disagreement uh, between India and Pakistan over what happened with the planes, how many planes. I mean, the most basic, basic facts in this most are recent disputed. conflict are disputed in a way that's unusual. Um, mm. Also very heavily tied in uh, with um, the fact that there's an election coming up in India and um, the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi is from a Hindu nationalist party and um, he has been much tougher on the Kashmiri uh, <coughs> issue since uh, taking office a few, well, four, five years ago. And this is getting mixed in with the election campaign. So it's complicated, but that they're both nuclear powers. Yes, this is the the big fear, yes. is that um, uh, the heat of the moment, uh, right. someone will make a mistake, and right. you've got uh, both countries are nuclear powers. Both countries, uh, of course, neither country is a member of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. Right. So, and I was I was looking through the uh, Bulletin of Atomic Scientists to get yep. some framework as to how many warheads each side had. And if we look at Pakistan, the best estimate, they've got 140 to 150 nuclear warheads already. Mm -hmm. They are developing all kinds of different delivery systems. They are expanding their current uranium enrichment facilities. And they're on track to have 350 warheads by 2029. Now, that would make them the third largest nuclear power in the world. Now remember, these yeah. are non-monitored because they're not members of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Right. And India's right behind. Yep. 130 to 140 nuclear warheads. They're building a brand new uh, plutonium production facility. Uh, and, of course, they see this as part of their balance of power vis-a-vis Absolutely. Pakistan and, and China as yep. well. 
they're working on uh, new delivery systems, long-range land and sea-based systems. So fairly sophisticated, both yes. sides. And, and you know, as, as we learned during the Cold War, uh, you need mechanisms in place for yes. cooler cooler heads to prevail in, t- in any time, time of a crisis. And those don't exist at this point. They really don't. Um, I think people tend to think that wars start when political leaders decide to start a war. And that is sometimes true. Um, But sometimes countries stumble into wars, essentially, because um, of miscalculation or misperception and those mechanisms to um, clarify and, uh, you know, de-escalate right. may not exist well. And and this is a situation where, you know, they're not really in place. And when you add to it again, um, something that's been highlighted in the in the news a lot has been just like how how wild and unruly and it can't be a surprise but uh social media has been in particularly in unusually so particularly in reference to this last um this last spike in tensions Mm -hmm. um conflict yes yeah and again you mix in with that uh the politics of a president or uh, sorry of you know election not a presidential election but an election and uh it really does open open the door especially since as you said those you know de-escalation and con and you know conflict uh you know confirmation exactly what's going on sort of structures aren't in place it really opens the door for some for, for some real risk yes and as i said well i think one of the big problems of course india and pakistan have never signed on to nuclear non-proliferation right. treaty of course there are other countries haven't either israel for example right. hasn't and israel publicly is very ambiguous as to their nuclear capabilities but we know it's they have them yes. and and uh, there's okay. also interesting enough south sudan which is now a nuclear power which is not a member but right. uh, so those procedures aren't in place plus as as you indicated there's no uh, track that when a when a crisis occurs, the two heads of state or the, the working groups will begin to tamp things down, yeah. uh, and the fear is that you know that this could get out of control. And yeah. given the complexity of the region, very complex, it's it, it, it's 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 very very possible. Uh, so yeah. uh, you know, anytime you've got that many nuclear weapons involved, um, uh, Americans, we need to pay attention to what's going on. Yeah something to watch it's not just somewhere across the world that we shouldn't pay Mm -hmm. no attention to no and and Kashmir is considered by um a lot of of uh experts including those who run the doomsday clock um to be the really the most likely um site for a nuclear war to Mm -hmm. to occur so yeah it's it's uh something not to ignore okay yeah so let's let's uh take another break here and uh, we'll be back in just a couple minutes here The International Power Hour is brought to you by the Political Science Program at IU Southeast. Are you interested in how power is exercised by the people? Political science might be the major for you. Whether it's the political science or public administration track, you will get the skills to make you ready for a powerful career. To find out how to do this, go to www.ius.edu slash political dash science. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the International Studies Department at IU Southeast, where you can prepare for your global future. More information online at ius.edu slash international dash studies. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the Department of Political Science at IU Southeast, studying power in all its forms and places offering multiple tracks in political science and public administration. More information online at ius.edu slash political science. What if you were wearing something sexy? What if you were drinking? What if you made the first move? No matter what, sexual assault is never your fault. Support is available 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline. Call 1-800-656-HOPE or visit RAIN.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. This is Christina Ricci with RAIN, reminding you it's never your fault.
Brought to you by Rain and this station. Welcome back to the International Power Hour. This is Gene Abshire. I'm here with my co-host Cliff Staten, and we are talking about uh, things going on in the news. And uh, next up are, is a lot of um, political protest in Haiti, which is um, a country that often gets ignored unless there's a natural disaster. <laughs> but Cliff, what's what's going on in Haiti? Well, recently you've had uh, really this is kind of an ongoing. St- ongoing mm-hmm. story in Haiti, but uh, protests, rising costs of living, uh, national currencies in free fall, basically this is the poor. Uh, 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 Haiti, let's put it this way, Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Yes. You've got 80% of the people in the country that uh, make no more than $2 a day. They, they live on less than $2 a day. Now, I, I would let that sink in, okay? Yeah. That, that's, that's $2, okay? Which, um, I mean, I get a question about that kind of thing a lot from students because they say, right. well, I mean, isn't the cost of living lower there? Yes, yes, it is. However, $2 a day is still, regardless of a lower cost of living, unimaginably grossly insufficient to live Yes. To live on. And you have to remember, Haiti has to import much of its food. Yes. That food is expensive. Yes. It comes at Western prices. Yes. So, uh, uh, you know, think about, again, again, $2 a $2 day. A day. Yeah. Um, this is a country that uh, many of you uh, may or may not know. In 1804, they had a slave rebellion mm-hmm. that ultimately made it an independent country. The world's only successful slave rebellion. That's exactly. Exactly right. It's a big deal. And uh, it was a very big deal. Uh, Although the interesting thing that, since I talk about Cuba a lot, is the sugar plantation owners left the country and went to Cuba. And that's why Cuba now, (laughs) for many, many years, controlled the sugar market as opposed to to Haiti. But anyway, uh, this is a country that suffered under U.S. occupations. in terms of one corrupt government after another and uh, it currently beginning in the and and i don't want to go through the long history i don't think that's important but beginning in 1983 um haiti was in debt like many countries in latin america were in debt and the I actually think the long history might be worthwhile, but that's okay. Well, if we, <laughs> we, we can chat, we, we only have a few minutes. We can chat. We can bring <laughs> that up another, another time. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but I have feelings the, about that long history. Given given the debt issue, yeah. uh, and has happened in many Latin American countries as well, the International Monetary Fund came in <laughs> and renegotiated much of that debt to be able to so they could continue to pay off their debt and the line of of credit was reopened once again but that comes with conditions right and basically since 1983 the economy of haiti and the government spending has basically been under control of the international monetary fund and these these types of conditions And typically what happens is, is, is the IMF will come in and say, okay, here, the biggest problem we see right now is you've got an inflation problem. Okay, so they will institute austerity measures to try to tamp down inflation. Yeah. Well, typically that means we're going to cut government spending, right. we're going to increase taxes, and we're going to devalue your currency so that you could, will, first of all, quit buying foreign goods, mm. but make your exports look more attractive. At least that's the logic behind it. Yeah. And the problem with that, of course, as any economist will tell you, it, it is, and I teach in my IPE class, it has kind of a J-curve effect. <clears throat> You're go- when you defeat inflation, you're actually causing a recession. So things are going to get worse before Before they they get get better. better. Mm -hmm. The problem is in Haiti, they've never really gotten better. And with so much debt issues, plus money still coming in, the government has been able to, various leaders have siphoned off thousands, Uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And to to basically, uh, and and the big losers are the majority of the population in Haiti. And so, You've seen then um, an outgrowth of uh, uh, finally organizing protests against against the current government. Uh, they're calling for the resignation of Jovenel Moyes, the current uh, current uh, president. 
Uh, and so this is this is kind of a, an ungo- ongoing story, but yeah. but yes, uh, I would argue yes. The the, the history is important. Um, you know, we, the United States actually o- occupied the country from 1915 1934, uh, and basically ran their treasury. But so we make sure we get paid our uh, the money they owe us. So well, and that successful slave rebellion looked pretty threatening to the U.S. at that point too. Absolutely, as a, as a model. Yes. Um, yeah, I remember it was it was probably. Uh, gosh, 10 years ago now, um, there were reports out of Haiti that mud cakes uh, were getting too expensive for people due to inflation. Um, Mud cakes. Like literally people are are eating mud. Uh, And this is a country also that... that Suffered earthquakes yes. and and oh my gosh, tons of foreign aid coming into the country yeah. that was siphoned off by by political leaders and so on. And it it uh, you know I I don't know if anybody has a has a a grasp of how really to pull Haiti out of this this problem. Well, not even just foreign foreign leaders. I remember or for I'm sorry. Uh, corrupt political leaders siphoning off money. I remember um, a few years ago, report after the big Haitian earthquake that the um, U.S. Red Cross had pledged to build like 300 and some uh, homes for uh, Haitian earthquake victims. And when uh, some investigation happened uh, by journalists, uh, it was discovered that six houses had been built rather than 300 and some. And that wasn't the Haitian government. That was, you know... A U.S.-based NGO. So right. lots yes. of Haiti yes. always loses. Yes. And people yes. get tired the pe- of it. The, the vast majority of the people in Haiti continue to suffer. Yeah. 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 Real suffering, yeah. like we can't imagine. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So we've also seen uh, a lot of drama out of, out of Venezuela. What's, what's, we don't have much time. But. We, we've talked about <laughs> Venezuela earlier uh, on, on earlier shows, but recently... Um, there are more and more protests against the Maduro government, led by Juan Guaido, who is now the uh, kind of uh, selected leader, the, the anointed leader of the opposition. Uh, and uh, the U.S. Uh, has uh, there been uh, just recently uh, the electrical grid uh, went out. Uh, really you have, out. Yes, you have a large um, dam. And I think it's southeast Venezuela that provides electricity to much of the electrical grid, and based something in the lines between that and the grid broke. Okay, yeah. and so, but each side is blaming, uh, blaming the other, so to speak. Yeah. The Maduro government is arguing that this was the work of the United States and the opposition, Hacking. and the opposition is blaming it on incompetence of the Maduro government, and so on. Uh, there have been the United States has stepped up its efforts to put financial pressure on the Maduro government um, terms of in terms of oil profits and so on. And many countries have, you know, this this move by Juan Guaido to seize to become the president was really, I would argue, a really risky affair. And I think uh, what we're seeing is that recently the Supreme Court is investigating him. And as I said earlier, that makes him eligible to be arrested, which what has happened with the opposition to the Maduro government is that quite frequently opposition leaders end up in jail and you kind of cut the head off the snake, so to speak. And my fear was that this that's that's exactly where where this is ultimately going to be is, is moving toward. Uh, so uh, the U.S. has, has uh, recently we've removed all of our um, all of our uh, uh, personnel from the embassy, uh, yes. fearing uh, you know um, push comes to shove, fearing for their lives, yeah. so to speak. Uh, which I mean, it's a target when right. when the U.S. is being blamed for again like hacking into the electricity system and and they've been without electricity for like six or seven days this now, is uh they? six maybe today i guess is That's today the, the, seventh. the seventh and it day. depends on where you are yeah. and some of it's been restored uh most of it is not that's a lot so, that's a lot yes yeah. yes so, so. It, again it, an ongoing uh question you know will the u.s go beyond just economic sanctions financial sanctions uh, and that's something the we Trump might. The Trump administration might, has put that on the table. We might yeah. we might talk about that at some other point as well. So um, more to watch. That that story's not running out of steam. That's right. All right.
Uh, we are now going to uh, have another episode in our Passports and Politics series. I'm going to do this one. Um, I'm going to take it out more broadly again from Cliff's uh, specifics on what to do in Cuba. And I'm going to talk about embracing the unknown, public transportation. <laughs> a big part of political travel is experiencing a little of life uh, like a local does. As I suggested in episode one of Passports and Politics, seek out a grocery store and see what that is like. But even more than poking around a grocery, I'm going to urge you to explore with public transportation. I know that in the Kentuckiana community, that's an unfamiliar experience for a lot of people, but it is normal daily life in a lot of places where tourists like to visit. Places where driving may be scary and the parking a combination of impossible and terribly expensive, so you don't want to drive. Another option, of course, is to take a taxi. That can be a great experience if you have a taxi driver who can and will talk with you, but especially if you don't speak the language, a taxi driver may or may not be willing to engage. Taxis are also more expensive than public transit, and I like to save money uh, where I can so that I can splurge on other things. Finally, I have kind of mixed feelings about taxis from a safety perspective. Sometimes they are the best and safest option, and you should do enough research on your destination to know if that's the case. However, other times they may be less safe. I'm often a woman traveling alone, and while I love the flexibility that gives me, I don't always like getting in a car with some strange man, it's always a man, <laughs> and being driven off to who knows where, especially in places where I have to sort out official from unofficial taxis, with unofficial maybe being less reliably safe. That said, I was alone in the middle of the night in an unofficial taxi in Vietnam, and it was a perfect ride. But also, some of the scariest rides in my life have been in taxis, including official ones. The ride to the airport in Buenos Aires, where the guy was wildly weaving in, of tra in and out of traffic, going about 80 miles an hour in a 30-mile-an-hour zone, was terrifying. I was shaking so badly when I finally got out of that car that I could barely hand him my money. I've never had that on public transportation. I love public transit because it's relatively cheap, usually easier than you'd expect, generally pretty efficient, though it can vary, and it, it feels more predictable to me than a taxi, and it's much greener than being in a car. But again, outside of big cities in the U.S., many U.S. Americans don't have much experience with public transit. So how do you do it? The internet is a good place to start. If you Google, how do you use public transit in enter your city, uh, you will typically get some good instructions. Guidebooks are also very useful with lots of basic how-to tips for a particular city. One obvious issue is tickets, and that clearly varies a lot from city to city and also your situation. Many cities have single or multi-day passes where you can have unlimited rides within the city core or even beyond. That's super convenient if you're going to be moving around a lot. Sometimes I'll buy those even if they cost a little extra just for the huge convenience and it's still cheaper than a taxi. Some places have cards where you can put on a certain amount of money at the beginning of your trip, and it will subtract funds from the cards with each ride. The cost of that may vary depending on the distance traveled, the type of transportation, and even time of day. There may also be single-use or multi-use tickets that have to be validated, well, like putting them in a machine for a stamp, um, when you get on the bus or train. And you may also need to do that again at the end. I hold my tickets until I'm out of the station or off the bus or tram. Some transit systems appear to work on the honor system, but beware. They may have transit officials who will randomly inspect tickets and levy heavy fines on cheaters. And sometimes those transit officials may be in plain clothes. Though if that's the case, they generally show ID in my experience. In short, you may have an array of options for tickets that allow you to tailor your purchases to your needs, balancing costs, convenience, and how many trips you'll make, etc. This is where research comes into play from websites, guidebooks, and, yes, asking people questions. I've gotten a lot of good, helpful information from people sitting behind transit information counters, though if it's rush hour, they may, may be less able to spend much time helping, helping you. There may also very well be signs in English explaining ticket options, and there very, very well may be machines with English instructions where you can buy your tickets. It really can be easy, especially if you've done some research and have an idea of what kind of ticket to get. So you have your ticket, now what? Speaking very generally, I like rail systems, trams, trolleys, subways, and commuter trains. I like them best because they're easy. Follow the tracks and you'll find a stop. 
miss your stop? Just get off and follow the tracks back a bit if it's walking distance. Or, worst case scenario, walk to the adjacent tracks and get a ride back in the other direction. Typically, especially for subways and, comu and commuter trains, the stops are really clearly marked and therefore very easy to keep track of and count. You can also track your progress on a map, either the reliable old paper map or a Google Maps if you down or sorry, if you choose the the offline option or from a variety of smartphone apps. Some cities transit systems have their own apps, but there are others out there that come recommended such as Transit app for both iPhones and Androids. Transit app says you can have um, an easy map of your trip from point A to point B. It will give you predictions as to when the next train or bus is coming and other handy features. Its offerings are far from global, just 10 countries, but it might meet your needs and it gives you an idea of what types of apps are out there. Pay attention to color coding of subway and commuter train lines on signs, maps, and in stations. That can make things easier. Also, watch the locals to see what they're doing and how they do it, especially with things like ticket logistics. Although realize regular commuters may have a monthly pass that works differently from your, from your ticket. I like trams and trolleys for seeing things. There is a convenient, though in my limited experience, horribly crowded trolley line in Lisbon, Portugal, that runs past almost all of the must-see locations. In Vienna, there's a lovely circle line around the city center with so many pretty sights, especially at night, that I've ridden around and around in circles when I was really, really tired, or in the winter when it was just too cold to want to be out walking. Alternatively, though, if I'm trying to get somewhere at rush hour, the subway will whisk me beneath all the surface street traffic jams and sometimes that's just what I need. It's good to do some research to figure out what will work well for you for cost, convenience, and where you want to go. Between apps, the internet, and the kindness of strangers, it really is doable to use public transit to get around and experience life like a local. And that brings me to my next point, the kindness of strangers. I have encountered so many kind strangers across my travels who have helped me so many times in getting around. Don't dismiss this as unlikely. It varies, of course. On my very first trip overseas as a teenager, I was with my parents in London, and we were all trying to figure out how to ride a subway for the first time. We asked a ticket seller, and while he answered our questions adequately, he wasn't super nice about it. But that was okay. We found our way to the stop for the British Museum and got off. But then we had another problem. We knew we had to be really close to the museum, but we didn't have a good map. And it turned out that there weren't any directional signs in the subway station. We, sit, we stood on the street outside the station in confusion for a moment, and I pulled together my courage to ask a random stranger. She very kindly said she was heading to somewhere close to the museum and walked us to the museum door, chatting the whole way. Not only did we find the museum, but I got to have a conversation with a real live Londoner. When I was in Lisbon, Portugal a couple of years ago, I got on a bus believing that it would go by a subway station so I could transfer. When I got on the bus, I told the driver, who didn't seem to speak, speak much English, that I wanted a metro stop. He nodded. We rode along for a while, and then some more, and I saw no metro signs. I was getting a little nervous. But all of a sudden, we pull over at a stop, the driver gets up and comes back to me to the, to the back of the bus where we, where we were sitting, um, and said, Metro, and pointed off. I stood in the doorway of the bus, but I couldn't see any indicator of a metro station. No signs, no obvious entrance. So I looked confused and asked again, Metro? The driver got off the bus with us. He walked a short distance and gestured around a corner. It sure wasn't visible from the bus stop, but there it was, the metro station. How nice was that of the bus driver to actually get off the bus and walk a bit with us? Sometimes things can go wrong. I was traveling around southern Turkey some years ago with a friend. She didn't speak more than a few phrases of Turkish, but she'd been living there for a few months and had a good handle on how to ride the buses from town to town. We were on a bus from the small town of Mardin to a larger city called Urfa. We thought we had to be approaching Urfa, but we were still well out of town when all of a sudden the bus pulled over at the side of the highway and the bus conductor came back and pointed to us and a few others and said, Urfa, out! My bus experience friend was accustomed to being set down in a proper bus station, not on the side of a highway. So there we stood at the side of the road with about five young Arab guys, with me saying my one word, Orfa, Orfa, and my friend saying her one Turkish word, bus station, bus station, 
what the heck? <laughs> the guys on the side of the road with us uh, gestured for calm. There's a universal gesture for this. Um, and a few minutes later, along came a city bus, and the guys gestured that we should get on. We said, Orfa, to the bus driver, and he sold us a ticket, and off we went. We rode for a bit and then had a new problem. We were on an Orfa city bus, but we had no idea where this bus went, how close to the city center we were, that's where our hotel was, or where we should get off. We were quietly discussing when we should make a leap of faith and just get off the bus and figure out what our next stop would be, when on this jam-packed bus, a woman next to us said in English, where are you trying to go? Ah, an English speaker. We told her the address of the hotel. It was in the center and on a main street. She said she knew it, and she went far beyond telling us when we should get off the bus. She got off the bus with us and walked us not just to the hotel, but right up to the check-in desk to make sure we were okay, and then gave us a couple of nearby restaurant recommendations. And she chatted with us the whole day, or the whole way. It wasn't a whole day. <laughs> we got to talk with a real-life Orpha resident. Can riding public transit be scary? Sure, sometimes if you're willing to do like I am and really not have a good idea of where you're going. That's not a beginner approach. That's one I developed across the decades as I gained confidence in street sense and realized two things. First, there are a few public transit errors that are irreversible, and whatever happens, you will almost certainly be okay especially if you have daylight. I do get much more cautious at night. And emergency taxi fare should anything unexpected happen. Although I've never had to use it, but I've been glad I had it. And second, wow, there are so many good and people, good and helpful people all over this world, and they will assist you. You may have to ask. You may just have to look confused. But I have so many stories of people coming to help me figure things out when I've been lost or unsure about where to go. In my 40-plus countries' worth of travel, it has taught me that some caution in street sense is absolutely wise, but you can see so much real life and possibly experience so much goodness and humanity while embracing the unknown of public transportation. I encourage you to give it a try. This was the International Power Hour. Thank you for listening. This is Horizon Radio.